You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. This episode is sponsored by Kama Sutra. This family-owned and operated company has been the gold standard of sex play products since 1969, which is a great number. Kama Sutra has been making love better with their products that range from toys to personal lubricants and massage oils. You can get a 20% off discount right now on all orders at kamasutra.com, K-A-M-A-S-U-T-R-A.com. When you use our discount code S&S, S-A-N-D-S, it looks like SANS in all caps. Enjoy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone, your average law student who likes to talk about fucking all the time. This week, we are joined by someone that basically a lot of y'all asked for. We are joined by Kana Kassard. She is an MFT as well and is the CEO and founder of Intuitive Sensuality. She's developed a sensual intelligence program to help individuals and couples liberate their sensuality, deepen intimacy, and ignite passion. But super interestingly, and what we're probably mostly going to talk about, is she's done a lot of research on chronic pelvic pain. She's a pain warrior and struggled with chronic pelvic pain herself, so she personally knows what it's like to be on that emotional roller coaster of dealing with pain and sexual dissatisfaction, loss of arousal, and even crumbling relationships and lack of confidence, especially in the bedroom. So basically, she spent the last 13 years conducting personal and professional research to find proven techniques for chronic pelvic pain relief, which not a lot of people are fucking doing because nobody cares about pelvic pain, at least not the male fucking researchers. And she, however, has made it her life goal and passion to help other vulva owners and couples learn what they need to do in order to find pain relief and more fulfilling connections. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm so glad to be here. That was was like a bio with such like a social justice air. (laughs) Well, like so many people have written in about pelvic pain. So like... It's such a not talked about issue. And whenever we've like touched on it in previous episodes, everyone's like, I want to know more. I want to know more. So we listen to you. It's, it's pretty amazing. I think even just maybe even a year or two ago when I've told people, this is what I do. This is like my passion. Their response is usually like, I don't, what that happens. Like women have pain during intercourse. It's like, yes. And now it's such a hot topic, especially like with the personal or the current climate right now. Why is it that people don't care? Is it just the male researcher thing or are there other reasons why it's been underfunded? That would be my guess is that not only that, but also I think that there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of like really great answers right now. And so the, the treatment protocol for each person tends to be just like slightly different. There's not like a one size fits all for most people. And so that means that if it's underfunded, then it's harder to get a lot more exposure to what possibilities are out there. So it's, it's it's like this negative feedback loop of not being able to get enough funding and then also not able to get enough people involved. And then there's not really great conclusive evidence. I mean, we, we do have some specific lines of treatment that typically work, but it's not like, it's not a sure thing. Not what I find the most, yeah, what I find the most upsetting is that OBGYNs, who you would think should know about this, mm-hmm. often have no knowledge yeah. about like, I think about pleasure in general, but like pelvic pain especially. And mm-hmm. so when you're working through this, it seems that you have to find a specialized pelvic floor therapist or an OBG who is like informed about that. Mm-hmm. Or like, a sexological body worker like Pam Samuelson, who we had on our previous yeah. episode. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, why isn't it a part of the curriculum? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the clitoris wasn't even like found or like identified as a thing. It was was right. (laughs) It wasn't found in textbooks until like very recently. So before we move forward, I'm just curious if we can define pelvic pain and all, is it something that is like you feel all the time as well, or does it occur during like penetrative sex or like when you get turned on? So it's a really wide range. And that is also another problem with the research is because there's a lot of different nuanced experiences of pelvic pain. So there can be like the, the umbrella term of pelvic pain has under it a whole host of other diagnoses and issues. The most chronic one that I tend to work with is, or not one, but the, the grouping that I tend to work with is vaginismus, which is an involuntary muscle spasm of the vaginal walls or the excuse me, the vaginal muscles, so the pelvic floor muscles, and then vulvodynia, which is basically any sort of pain or irritation or inflammation of the vulvar area. In addition to that, there's like vulvar vestibulitis, which is now being re-termed as vestibulodynia. And then there are some others such What's as endometri. Vestibulodynia is basically a, an inflammation or pain on the vestibule versus the vulva. And so the, vest- the, vestibule? the vestibule is basically the entry, the entry point, like yeah. the entry to the vagina. Yes. Right? Yeah. So the, the vulva is the whole area, including all the lips and everything inward. Then the vestibule is like, I mean, I think one of the reasons why it's called the vestibule is because it looks like the structure of a vestibule, uh, like a architectural structure, mm-hmm. the entry point into a home or into a building. <laughs> For sure. It's inst- but this yeah. is instead of where you take off your coat, you put on a condom. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's, so then there's like endometriosis, which has like a whole other host of issues as well. So for the work that I do with women and people who have vulvas is to help them just get a really big idea of what it means to have pain in such a sensitive area. And for some people can be pain can be all of the time or which is unprovoked, or it can be provoked, which means that there's only a pain flare up when they've had some sort of penetration or some sort of irritation on the skin. So it depends for each person what their particular diagnosis is. And some people experience pain just because they're not aroused enough. How do you know when there is a medical thing going on versus Mm -hmm. when it's just like you're not wet or the person maybe is larger than, you know, you've experienced before. Mm -hmm. That's why I really like to encourage uh, the people who come to see me or the people that I do um, sessions with to seek out a medical professional who is aware because there are certain kinds of tests like the Q-tip test. So if, if somebody wants to go to their gynecologist and ask their gynecologist to do a test to see what kind of diagnosis they have, they can do a Q-tip test. And basically the gynecologist will take a Q-tip and test all the different areas around the vulva and the vestibule to see where the pain is occurring. And depending on where the pain is at, it kind of gives an, gives an indicator to the gynecologist about what type of pain they're having, whether it's hormone related, whether it's nerve issues or whether it's muscles, because those are usually when it comes to pain upon penetration and entry, the pain is usually a nerve experience or a skin or tissue issue (laughs) or muscles. And if the muscles are really tight, then it can cause friction on the skin. So it's like, it's, it's so complicated sometimes, which is why it's so important to have an OBGYN or just a gynecologist on board who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just sounds like there's so many, there's a, a vast array of like different types of pain, like you said, that can occur and they can be so complex. And so it's super important that if you are experiencing pain, that the first thing to do would be to consult an informed medical practitioner mm-hmm. to get to the root of what's mm-hmm. causing it. So you can make sure you're treating it properly right. with the right team. How do you find like medical practitioners that are knowledgeable about this? There is a website called nva.org, which is the National Vulvodynia Association, and there are healthcare providers on there. And then also IPPS.org, which is the International Pelvic Pain Society, I think. And yeah. (laughs) And so those two have lists of providers on there. 
in Los Angeles, I work with two doctors specifically. So Dr. Andrea Rapkin, who is one of the leading researchers and treatment providers at UCLA for pelvic pain. And then also Dr. Lisa Valle, who is in Santa Monica. They're great. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. One thing that I was wondering as you were describing like the different types of pelvic pain and the origins of them, I'm wondering how much to your knowledge is psychosomatic? Mm. It's so interesting. And I get the question a lot because there are gynecologists who do not believe that it's a psychological or a psychosomatic issue. It's really hard to say with certainty, how much is and how much isn't. And that's why I take a little bit of a holistic approach that I think it's both and, because if there is only a skin or a tissue issue or a muscular issue, then when the person has a chronic experience of that pain, it's going to start to create a pain pathway, which is called nociception. That basically the body or the nervous system determines that anything around or in the vulvar area or in the vagina is a pain or a threat to the body, to the system. And so then it starts to determine, you know what, this is a bad thing. Let's just make everything in that area on a high alert and experience a lot of pain. Avoid it. Yeah, exactly. So it ends up becoming a traumatic response for the body. And it might not be trauma necessarily for the person, but the body senses it. But it's like the body thinks it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right. I like compare it to like if you've ever like thrown up from a certain type of alcohol or like gotten food poisoning, Mm -hmm. most likely you're going to like avoid that restaurant or avoid that bottle of Malibu rum. Right. (laughs) Personal experience. experience, My friend's personal experience, not actually mine. (laughs) That's for another story, another day. My first bombing experience was tequila. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was a tall boy of Heineken. Oh, oh wow. It was two. It was two. And I was like, 14. okay. 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 I was going to say, but I then your body I like carbonara and I could see it. Ew. <laughs> Sorry. Thank Sorry, you that's for disgusting. that. Carrot. You had a question. Nicola. No, I just, I'm, I'm, I like, it seems to fit into that kind of narrative that like, if your body has this experience biologically, evolutionarily, then it's like, oh, I'm supposed to avoid this thing that made me sick or this thing that brought me pain. Right. So your body starts responding like it thinks it's supposed to, to Mm -hmm. protect itself. Right. Right. And that's, so that's like, if we take a look at the pain or the brain's response to the pain after having had chronic experience. But then I think to the question that Simone had, had, of like how much of it is psychosomatic. So like there can even be stuff from childhood or like past experiences that have started to weave into a person's brain patterning that like negative sex messages, like sex is bad, sex is dirty. So then the brain starts to get these beliefs that maybe are inaccurate that start to actually get woven into the person's response to sexual stimulation. So I see that a lot a lot of people come into me and they're like, I don't, I don't really have trauma. I don't really know why this is going on, but my gynecologist is telling me it's a trauma response. And then I educate them about like what that actually means and let them know that like, yes, you know, some of the ways that we think and believe about either ourselves or sex or our partners can actually create a somatic response to these beliefs around something that's scary or that has been told to us as, as being something that's scary. So it's like hand in hand with an actual physical medical issue and then also a psychological belief system that's been set up. So like maybe either the psychological or the medical is the thing that starts it and then the other one sort of maintains it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And it can, it can go both ways. It is, it is so, so brutal. It's, and the personal research that I've done over the past 13 years has been me just finding out all of these different like ways that are kind of linked and connected that when I realized like, oh, I had this experience when I was a kid, I didn't think it really impacted me. But now I can see how my body, like now that I've done so much deep psychological work, I can see how my body might respond to that concept. What kinds of experiences? I know you said like shame and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, sex is bad. Right. Are there other kinds of experiences that... If you're willing to share what you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. So I remember a woman in my life who was really important to me when I was a kid mentioned to me that men really liked tight vaginas. Mm -hmm. And so I should start, I should be aware of this concept. Like, and I should, I should really start to make sure that I'm clenching and Mm -hmm. doing Kegels at like 100% years old. 
<laughs> well, and for some people it's great. Like it's a, a, an impactful thing, but if you already have like really tense muscles, mm-hmm. what happens? Well, that's then the, the muscles get trained to be hypertonic, which means overly engaged. So if you think about like somebody who's got a lot of tension in their shoulders, for instance, I feel it right yeah, yeah. Everybody like moves their bodies. <laughs> like, where do I feel it? Yeah. So if we think about being like tight in our shoulders as it is, and then somebody tells us, oh yeah, by the way, the gender that you're supposed to be attracted to really enjoys that when you have your shoulders up toward your ears. So make sure that you keep doing that. And so then you've got this 11 year old who's like, bringing her shoulders up into her ears. And then as a 20 year old wondering why there's so much tension and, and like stuck muscles in that area and why she has so much, so many headaches. And, and the same happens with our pelvic floor that if we get these belief systems that that's supposed to be an area that the vaginal area is supposed to be either really tight or it's supposed to be off limits, then there's been hard wiring in the brain that tells us that the muscles should be tight and closed up. Nothing should get inside. Or if mm-hmm. somebody gets inside, it should be really tight. And then on a physical level, what that ends up doing is there's less blood flow. So less arousal possibilities. The tissue isn't as healthy. And so maybe there can actually be some stagnation in the fascia, which is a connective tissue down there that kind of helps everything move really well. And then also pressure gets put on nerve endings between the muscles because we've got layers of muscles and nerve endings. And if the muscles are really tight and engaged, then the nerve endings start to get squished. And it's like, it's like a a pinched nerve in the back in the same way for pelvic pain. So it sounds like you're talking about redefining what trauma means. Cause when someone hears trauma, they may think like, I don't know, they have this hierarchy of like what sexual trauma looks like, but it can just be maybe like a phrase or a cultural concept that you heard yeah. that impacts you negatively and that mm-hmm. that could be like a small trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so fucking mad about this tight vagina shit. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I know I want to focus on pain, but because you said that, I do want to bring up this topic. I have had couples in my office where the person with the penis has told the partner that they have a loose vagina. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Oh God, that's so painful. Yes. What For do you, her. Uh, yes. Right, I'm and I'm like, well, maybe you have a small penis. We don't like talking about size stuff here because there are so many ways to have sex besides just penetration. But like, what do you think about like, so obviously there can be a hypertonic pelvic floor, meaning like tense muscles. Mm-hmm. Does a quote unquote loose vagina mean that the muscles are not activated enough? Is mm-hmm. it just a cultural concept? Like, how do we break this down? Because yeah. when I heard it, I was just like, ooh, like if someone said that to me, wow. Yeah, it's there is a quote-unquote dysfunction, although I hate using that word, that is a hypotonic pelvic floor, which means that the, the muscle structures, so the pelvic floor is like a hammock from tailbone to um, pubic bone and then from hip to hip. And it's like a hammock and it holds up all of our muscles there. And we need to have it properly toned, just like any other muscle in our body. And for so, going uh, to the bathroom, for mm-hmm. yeah, for like facilitating move, like bowel movements, bladder, holding up all the other organs. And so, if it's too loose, if it's not toned enough, then there can be issues that can happen because the organs aren't supported properly. And then the hypertonic is that there's too much pressure. So the the best way, if, if somebody is really, truly feeling concerned about that, about whether it's quote unquote too loose, they could go see a pelvic floor physical therapist. And then the physical therapist could kind of give some accurate information about like, nope, everything feels fine. It's, you know, it's your part normal body variation. Yeah, exactly. Can fisting af- like affect it, affect your vagina? It can, but it's like in, in the sense that it can provide good stretching, but not, okay. So not a negative (laughs) impact. Yeah. It can, yeah, it can, it, no, our body is so resilient that it like, it goes, yeah, it's really elastic. It can go back. Now, if somebody's doing fisting, they should probably also do some kegels, like just to kind of balance things out. Because if you're always constantly stretching something and you're never actually strengthening, then yes, it could be, it could be a bit problematic. But, um, I think each person individually is, is different. So talking to a a healthcare provider that's knowledgeable, if they're really concerned about it, then yeah. So yes, there can be a medical issue. And in exploring that, 
not hating your body for a potential just like difference of what your body is and feels like and knowing, I mean, I think another important thing is maybe you could speak more to this, but at different points throughout a person with a vulva's like menstrual cycle, mm -hmm. um, things shift and change down there. Right. Um, so it can feel different at different times in the month, different positions can feel different depending on like the size, length or girth of the person that you're with. So there's right. like so many factors here. And then just this cultural pressure of like, women are supposed to be tight. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. It, it puts so much pressure on us. <laughs> Emotion. And that's like what, it, like you said, one of those psychosomatic things that it's like this concept of, oh, in order to be desirable, I have to be really tight. And, uh, that it just, I don't know how many times I've actually heard that in my office. Like, it, yeah. It's everybody. And there's also like that weird sense of validation. If someone does like, oh my God, your pussy's so tight. Like, right. Right. Is that even true? Like aside from like vaginismus or hypertonic vaginas, like. Is a tight pussy a thing? That's a good question. Because I think that disclaimer of like, aside from people with vaginismus, then yeah, it, it can't. I think it's like, I think maybe the languaging should be more like, oh girl, our bodies really work well together. Like that should be the concept. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like it fits, fits, we fit so nicely. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. so snug. Like, <laughs> so like, snug. so snug. <laughs> like, snug it's just like a bug like, in a rug. <laughs> it's a I weird visual snug like a cock under a rock <laughs> oh. between a rock and a hard place these are horrible these are a horrible horrible example <laughs> i mean unless you like cbd cbt you know not cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy right. cock and ball torture yeah yeah <laughs> you can like both yeah that's yes. true <laughs> you can train yourself with cognitive behavioral therapy to enjoy cock and ball torture yes if if that is a goal that a person has i fully support it and could be used with cbt to have cbt <laughs> so speaking of like arousal needs you have this thing called the arousal architecture assessment that you've developed and yes. like what is that <laughs> yes um, so basically what I found that was like, I needed something to help discuss and talk about arousal with my clients, because when I would get to the point where they would either want to try and figure out what helps arouse them, or once they didn't have pain anymore, they, I would ask them like, okay, so what's, you know, what is your next step? What's your next adventure? What do you, what do you need support with? They would tell me that they don't even know what arousal feels like because they've either been so disconnected from mm -hmm. it. Or it's or always been painful. It's been painful. And so the conversations went from, okay, so what, what arouses you? And them saying, I have no idea to us now having conversations about like, let's try and figure out ways to break down what arousal actually means for them. And so the concept that I, I sort of developed is this five piece, like this five piece assessment where there are five different components of our arousal. There's sexual, mental, embodied, erotic, and intimate. Mm -hmm. And so these five concepts give people a way to start to see their, the differences in what actually creates arousal and then gives them a lot more fluidity in being able to talk with their partners and understand themselves about what has turned them on. And so it's, a, it's about getting really specific and nuanced with arousal so that people can actually start to enter into an arousal space. And for a lot of people who have had pain or some sort of sexual functioning issues, sexual arousal of just like straight explicit sexual acts is not going to do it. Mm. And so many times I have, I often work with heterosexual couples. So the woman will say, you know, I need to have all of my to-do list, my items on my to-do list done. I need to not be feeling pain. I need to make sure that I don't have to get up early for work tomorrow and you have to take out the trash. Like these are all of the things that she needs in order for her to even conceptualize being in an arousal space. Mm. Is that a, do people respond with like, that's a lot to ask for? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. they do. And cause there is this difference of like spontaneous arousal, which most people with penises experience versus like mm -hmm. 
arousal for people with, with vulvas, which can, or estrogen driven people, as I've been corrected for people who corrected, have a, suggested, suggested who have more of that responsive mm-hmm. arousal. And so like that can feel like a task for someone who's like, just wants to connect. And they're like, Oh, well, we have mm-hmm. to do all these things. Right. Like that right. seems like a lot of effort. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where I think like education about pleasure comes in. And, and changing the power dynamic in pleasure, because so far in our culture, we've been very penis focused and Mm. typically male, male, yeah, penetration, pleasure focused. And so this is, this is part of the educational piece that I instruct with my couples and in my program of talking about that. There are a lot of people who need to feel like their stress is managed and that they're in a safe space in their brains and in their bodies and in their environment and with their partner before they can even, before their body can even be responsive to Mm -hmm. any kind of arousal. So there's a lot of like education about what pleasure actually means. Yeah. And we talk about this a lot and obviously are always recommending Becoming Cliterate by Dr. Lori Mintz, which really addresses this. Hey, slutty scholars. Sorry for the interruption, but I want to take a moment just to offer you a discount code from our amazing sponsors. Kama Sutra has an ancient passion and philosophy based on the fourth century Indian text known as the Kama Sutra. Kama is the greatly revered Hindu god of love, while Sutra means narrative, manual, or guide. The teachings in this text include the use of oils and fragrances to enchant the senses and intensify sexual pleasure. I personally love and am inspired by the history and the inspiration for the company. They have amazing products ranging from massage creams and oils to personal lubricants, luxury bathing gels, and massage candles. I really love the Weekender Kit, which is an on-the-go intimacy package that can fit in your purse, your carry-on, or even your pocket. It's great for that planned spontaneity that we always talk about on the show. If you don't have a partner to use it with, take yourself on a date with Kama Sutra. Right now, use our discount code of S and S, S A and D S, like Sands, and get 20% off on all your orders at Kamasutra.com. Let us know what you think. I'm just curious. So, you named these five arousals, and then you talked about this person who had all these things that they needed to have done before they could get aroused. But I'm just curious if you could, like, give an example of what each one is. Sure. So, the way that, the way that I like the image, that I help people use. And, you know, obviously you can't do it here, but I can try to describe it. It's basically five concentric circles and for, to represent each of the five spaces. So there's red, yellow, green, blue, and purple because I love rainbowy colors and why not? So yeah. Right. (laughs) So, um, we'll start with sexual and that's the red, which is your basic explicitly sexual, engagement. So kissing, seeing a partner's naked body, watching pornography, anything that's explicitly sexual. And this is like foreplay. This is actual penetration, genitalia, touching, like just a very obvious sexual thing. And so most people's minds go to that place where they ask like, what, what arouses you? Oh, well, you know, grabbing, grabbing my tits or grabbing my partner's tits. Like those are, that's an explicit um, aspect. So then we have embodied, which is whatever gets you into the body in a safe space. So usually this is around like using your senses, feeling connected to yourself, feeling more into that spiritual space with your, with yourself. This is also psychological safety. So this is for a lot of people who have pain. This is the largest circle. This is a circle that when they do the assessment, they find that they are mostly in this space and need to be able to have that managed. So then mental is the green, which is usually about creating the right headspace. So this might be some like sexy music. This might be de-stressing and it's and and like the ambiance of the room. So like I like walking into a room and if, if the room is kind of like got this really sexual, sensual experience, then I'm like more in the mood than if I go into a room that's a little bit more like sterile and not really set up for sexy time. Then the blue is intimate which is about the emotional, spiritual connection with the partner. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a big or a deep emotional connection. It can be like for somebody, it might be very important for them to have like anonymous sex. Like maybe they like that and that really arouses Mm. them. Or it's somebody who needs to have a lot of deep connection with their partner and feel in relation with them to be able to get aroused. So we don't like judge anything. It's not about like what's good or bad. It's more about just what is. 
And then the purple is my favorite, the erotic. (laughs) And so this is all the stuff that's sort of like outside of the quote unquote box of what we're used to. So this is like BDSM, kink, fetishes, playfulness, creativity, and and then also there's the shadow side of sexuality here. So this is where trauma would be involved mm-hmm. and trauma would be kind of clocked in this in this spot. And again, not judging that it's there, but just understanding what it is and trying to unpair guilt and shame around the trauma experience in order for a person to either feel like they can release it or continue to engage in sex without without the shame or without the guilt and be able to still keep some of that eroticism involved. So I'm obviously a practitioner also, and I'm on board for this five circle thing, but how do you get people who have like never heard this type of concept or conceptualization, like on board? How do you help educate Mm -hmm. folks that all of these things are important for arousal and desire? Right. Well, usually it comes with just starting to explain that arousal and desire is this really, really like much more vast experience. And I'll start to, usually the, the conversation comes from having an understanding of the person that I'm working with. So if I, if I talk with clients and I can see that maybe they're, they really like dancing and like, for instance, if she has a really, she just, if she lights up while she's dancing with her partner and I can see her like start to get into her body where she's like moving a little bit more, I'll start to ask her about that experience and start to kind of pull it apart and really break it down into understanding why it is for her that it's so important for her to dance. And she'll start to describe like, well, you know, I really get to be close with my partner. I feel just like very connected and deep with him. And then I'll explain to her the concepts of arousal and how this dancing with her partner can start to trigger and be an entry point in for her to experience arousal with her partner. So it's a lot of it is about understanding the client and understanding like what, what makes them tick and what makes like what really turns them on, what's really important to them. And then starting to use that as the entry point to create an analogy or a parallel for arousal because so many people don't have a connection to that sexual arousal. And so I find that teaching them in a way that they already have connection to as a way for them to start to get a template for what arousal can be. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. definitely. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I'm always like jaw drop when you talk. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my gosh, you're so sweet. <laughs> no, seriously. I'm always, I always learn like so much from conversations with Kena and, and just that you, that you do something about it too, that you make these, these models that are very, mm-hmm. I think, accessible. But there's such a big part of this that is communication. Ascent- there's, it's essential to communicate mm-hmm. around this. And I wonder how many people do you work with? that haven't been able to communicate feeling pain Mm -hmm. and have just put up with it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so surprising. Right. Right. It's, it's so surprising. Sometimes it even catches me off guard. Like a client will come in and she'll say, yeah, I just have low libido. I don't really know why. Me and my partner were like fighting a lot and I don't think they're avoiding sex. Yeah. They're avoiding sex. And sometimes I don't even think to ask about pain because I just assume like, Oh, somebody's going to tell me, you know? And so we all, Mm. we all can like miss it. And then it'll be four sessions in and she'll say, Oh yeah, you know, I I have pain too. And I'm just like floored and like, you know, kicking myself in the butt. I'm like, I have totally forgot to even just assess for this. There are a lot of people, usually by the time they come to clients, come to see me, they've already been diagnosed with a pain disorder. Mm -hmm. But for those folks, it's almost every, I would probably say like 95% of the people who come to me without the diagnosis of pain eventually realizes that they've actually had pain. So a good number, unfortunately, and roughly 25% of people. So one in four tend to have had some sort of pain experience for people with, with vulvas. And I think the prevalence is around 20% of people who have chronic pelvic pain. So this Mm. is like a growing number. I think it's, I think it's actually larger. So let's say you've been diagnosed, you go to a medical professional, you come see a, you know, a therapist like you to work through the emotional aspect of it and how it's impacting their life or relationally. What do you do if someone's in a relationship and they need to work through the pain? How can two folks stay connected when maybe touching or even or penetration is off the table mm-hmm. for a certain mm-hmm. amount of time? Mm-hmm. This is my favorite thing to re-educate people on. Yes, help. <laughs> 
Because so we as a society have actually structured sexual activity and sex as like a pyramid. So on the bottom, it's like flirting and handholding and, and kissing. And then, you know, first base is what, what is it? It's like been so touching, long. touching stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. Like over the clothes touching and, you know, second base, you know, might be like more oral or under the clothes. And second then- base is oral. <laughs> I move really fast, so. Boomy stuff. Uh, Oh, is it? Yes, it's been a while. See, everyone has different bases, though. Different pyramids. I mean, not that I believe in a hierarchy of sexual touching, but. But our culture has a hierarchy of sexual touching. As a a child, I think. The top point of the pyramid being penetration. Penetration. And so the thing I love doing is starting to kind of like squish down that pyramid and like extend it as a spectrum. And say that like there's every everything on here can be just as satisfying. And the only reason that it's not is because we have this concept that we believe that in order to be a you know full man or a full woman, we or a full whatever, we have to have this experience of putting something inside of the vagina. And that mm. is that is the end all be all and the holy grail of sexual experiences. But that like we, it really works against us because we really narrow, we end up narrowing what we can be fulfilled by. Mm -hmm. And like, why would we want to do that to ourselves? So I kind of take that angle and talking with my clients about like, if you could have, like, man, you're really missing out. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if you could have unlimited experiences of sexual gratification and pleasure, Mm -hmm. would you want that? And most people are like, yeah, yeah, I do. Like, great. We're going to start with removing this concept that sex, penetrative sex has to be the thing that creates pleasure. Like I've had some of the most erotic experiences with, and this this is getting a little bit personal, but I know y'all are good about that. Oh yeah. As much personal as you want to include, it's just up to you. (laughs) One of my, like one of the most erotic experiences I had was a partner putting his finger inside of my mouth. Oh my God. Fuck yes. Finger fucking my mouth, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Simone needs a moment. <laughs> or like playing with your tongue. Like yeah. holding your tongue. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it was like, and I had no idea. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I fantasize about this. Like I really mm-hmm. want him to put his finger in my mouth. It was more of just like, it just kind of occurred. And then the the exchange between us and the power and the control and the relinquishing, the surrendering was just like, it was so amazing. And nothing went anywhere near my genitalia. And yet I was so aroused by this and so connected to my partner. Simone really likes this. <laughs> I'm nodding very vigorously. <laughs> I mean, it depends so on the partner, but I when right. it happens, I'm like... Very on board. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'll, like, I think that those, like, the the amount of dopamine that we get in those moments and endorphins and, like, the chemicals that are going off in our brains are the same as having penetrative sex if it's a pleasurable experience, that mm-hmm. the only thing that is getting in the way of us experiencing these things is our concept of what sex should look like and, like, what pleasurable, satisfying sex should be. Yeah, butt massages. Oh, oh. So good. I just recently found like this like website of erotica of just sensual massages. And that's Nicoletta's favorite porn. (laughs) What's this website? I can't remember. I'll send it. Asking for myself. Right. (laughs) It was like video after video. It was amazing. Yeah. And I actually send this link. I, I can't remember for the life of me right now, but I send this link to a lot of my pain clients because I, they to help get them like creatively thinking about what are the other options Mm -hmm. and get excited about it. Right. I think people think that it's like, I don't know, it's almost like a gluten allergy or a gluten intolerance where it's like, Oh, well this is like, nothing's going to be as good or it's going to like impact your life negatively as Mm -hmm. opposed to an opportunity for like greater creativity and connection and potentially like greater pleasure. Mm -hmm. Like rice Mm -hmm. and potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I have I've found that like my my sexual experiences that have nothing to do with my genitalia because I've had pain in the past and I'll have flare-ups from time to time that the I'm such a cerebral person like there's such like I, I'm just so in my mind a lot of times that if a partner can really get into my brain and he won't even have to touch me or she won't even have to touch me they won't even have to touch me it's just about 
the mind play of like what they say to me, that I'll be wetter than I've ever been in any other situation. And I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. This is blowing my mind. Literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. <sighs> so I think I think that's like educating partners on the potential of what they could have helps them understand that they can have actually so much more when sex is off the table, when penetrative sex is off the table. This is a little bit of a shift, but I really want to cover this because I've seen it so much in in my practice and I can imagine you have as well. But I know we're talking about like, there's a lot of things that can cause and maintain like genital pelvic pain. And I'm seeing more and more that there is a hormonal component mm. for people who have been on long-term birth control. Yeah. Huh? Is this a, this is a real thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I guess that would be hormone, what is it called? Hormone mediated vestibulodynia. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so this, I think, I think for the first time we're seeing, I mean, you can speak more to this, I think, than I can, but it seems like for the first time we're seeing, we are for the first time seeing a generation who has been on hormonal birth control for so long Mm -hmm. that it is impacting people. And one of those things can be pain Mm -hmm. because of how it messes with our hormones. Like, what the fuck is going on? So basically, the most simple way that I can describe this is that our body gets a signal that we don't have to produce it ourselves, um, the hormones ourselves. Like estrogen or mm-hmm. testosterone. Mm-hmm. So our vulvas, because uh, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm one of these people, our vulvas went into or go into menopause, basically. And so the vulva stops, it shows all the same signs as somebody who's in menopause. So wow. the skin is not as elastic. There's a lack of lubrication the skin is a lot, it can break a lot more. There can be a lot more atrophying. Yeah. The skin cells are atrophied, which means that the cells are not growing back as well as they would for a woman who's in her twenties. And it's just, it's not as pleasurable. And so we're, we're taking a woman who maybe is in her twenties and she's been on birth control for 10 years or well, 10 years, that's kind of a long, I mean, I guess some people can start at 10 years old, but so we're, we're taking a woman who's in her twenties and she's been on birth control for maybe seven years or something and trying to get her to have the same kind of penetrative sex that maybe her cohort who isn't on uh, birth control and doing the same thing. But the, the vulva is just not, it's not the same kind of vulva. It's not a 20 year old vulva. It's, it's a much older, more atrophied vulva. And then putting a penis inside, maybe without lubrication, unfortunately, but always use lubrication. Yeah, no matter what. No matter what. Um, Is this true for like IUDs as well or mostly oral contraceptives? It's been found mostly, it's only been researched with oral hormonal contraceptives because it's the whole system versus IUDs, which only puts uh, the hormones in the localized area. Which is so... But that's not really true, I heard. That like... IUD, like, it's not, like, a real thing that, like, hormones can just be localized. Like, they do go into the whole system. But I think it's just so frustrating that we have been taught that we are supposed to find a way to have safer sex Mm -hmm. and that birth control is being responsible and that going into it, people don't know or aren't educated that this could be mm-hmm. a possibility after long-term use. Right. And then being yeah, like, I thought I was legion. doing everything I was supposed yeah. to be doing and now – my body's all fucked up. Yeah. 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 I mean, you did say that, like, in all likelihood, someone in their 20s hasn't been on birth control for 10 years. But, like, I know plenty of young women who were just, like, told go on birth control either mm. for, like, acne or cramps mm-hmm. or whatever who were told at, like, 14 or 15. Like, mm-hmm. I went on hormonal birth control, I think, for the first time when I was 15. I, I'm, like, terrible at birth control. But um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I use more, I don't have a ton of penetrative sex and um, I use barrier methods, but there have been like, there's lead, like you said, there's a generation of women who really have been on it for 10 years. And like, just because they were told to go on it. And when you're 15, you really do listen to what your gynecologist says. Even when you're 25, you listen because we like mm-hmm. place all of our trust and belief in, in medical doctors. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And medical doctors who are just going by the textbook that was written maybe 10, 15, 20 years prior or on knowledge around that, not on cutting edge research, which is why I think the work that Dr. Rapkin is doing at UCLA is so important because she's starting to take a look at these things and like, what's the impact of it? And what do we need to know as consumers of these things that we're putting in? What are the side effects? So what does a treatment team look like for someone? who has hormone-mediated vestibulodynia. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a mouthful. 
Which I'm sure you like, Kena. <laughs> oh, yeah. <I> d- <laughs> you know it's mode. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so a treatment team is a knowledgeable gynecologist, a knowledgeable pelvic floor physical therapist who can help address the muscle structure and also help stretching the tissue of the vestibule. And then a knowledgeable, I think, a knowledgeable sex therapist to because when a person has been in through been through so much pain and discomfort and difficulty having to work with somebody who is knowledgeable and specialized in the areas around either sex therapy or pelvic pain there's going to be a lot more conversations that need to be have around and be had around these topics that general psychotherapists aren't trained in school to talk about and it's just really mm-hmm. unfortunate however i don't think it's impossible because there are a lot of pain management and stress reduction techniques that can be taught. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, that treatment team of at least of those three, but then adding on people like massage therapists and acupuncturists and integrative healthcare practitioners can also help too, depending on whatever a person's needs are. But there, there, for the medical side, there does need to be somebody who is managing the hormone treatment, which is usually in the form of a cream applied to the vestibule or the um, vulva area that's in pain. Also a nerve blocker that can help retrain the nerves so that the Hmm. nerves stop getting highly inflamed and highly sensitized. And then the pelvic floor physical therapist, like I said, helps stretch the muscles and the tissue. And then the psychotherapist can help or the sex therapist or sexologist can help with the retraining of the brain system and helping increase the arousal and the stress reduction. And explore other ways to experience pleasure and give hope that there's more beyond pain. Yeah. Yeah, there really is a solution, which is like, I think for a lot of people, a really big relief who might not know that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's really awesome. And I'm so glad you came to talk about that. I know we have to wrap up soon, but I just have kind of one final little question, which mm-hmm. isn't technically pelvic pain, but mm-hmm. it's just something I, I'm wondering because I actually experienced it recently. Okay. So, you know, like when you come externally, like really hard sometimes multiple times, Mm -hmm. and then you kind of have, like, a pain in your vestibule, and you're just like, I need something inside. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that, like, a biological thing, or am I alone in that experience? Do you mean a pain, or you mean, like, a, like, a wanting, like a... No, it's like a, and the only thing that could, like, soothe it would be, like, oh. (laughs) And when she made that noise, she put her fist into her other hand. Okay, it was, I didn't mean as a fist, though. I meant it as more like a cylindrical Something inside. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think I think maybe that you're really nuanced in your sexual pleasure. That's my guess, that you might have this, like, this, like, really deep awareness and understanding of your sexual arousal and your needs that you can identify something that maybe somebody else doesn't know how to put words to or experiences to or, or like, an ask. Like, oh, when I feel that thing, I need this. Like that's an like that's advanced hmm. understanding of your sexual arousal, whereas somebody might just not really have an idea of it. So huh. that's my thought on that. So and I that's also why I like, and that's also not. why I like really do like to like hold off on penetration. Like I like to fucking be like, okay, no, I need it now. Go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I love that when your body's like physically asking for it. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot sometimes like partner like all of my partners with penises have like identified as men and like sometimes they just can't fucking wait and I'm like, dude, if you just wait, you will see. Like the it goddess will be magical <laughs> sexual goddess. <laughs> yeah. It'll literally just vacuum you in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Last question before we wrap up. Accessibility. Yeah. I think there are so many great outlets out there of different kinds who can help people with vaginal pain, but because a lot of insurance companies or our society at large doesn't Mm. care (laughs) about female, uh, or I don't want to say female, but like reproductive health and wellness and sexual pleasure. Yeah. Like are there ways to help people find it if they, if their insurance doesn't cover it, if it's mm-hmm. not affordable? Cause a lot of these specialists may be out of network. Right. Right. And I, I am too myself, which is unfortunate, but like insurance just doesn't, they, companies just don't. Yeah. They're like, that's not real. We don't care. Yeah. So it, it is unfortunate. And that's actually why I developed 
the Central Intelligence Program for Chronic Pelvic Pain as an educational, it's a 12-week course of education around pelvic pain treatment and what I have found over the past 13 years to be helping that helps my clients get out of that space. Because I, I was funny that I was only having people come to see me in my office and a lot of people for, you know, various reasons of resource availability of what they can afford and, and timing, not everybody had access to this content and I really wanted to get it out there. And so that was a whole goal with the online course was to make it something that is affordable and accessible to people worldwide. And then is still the information that my private clients are getting and that they could take this content. So usually what I recommend, cause I don't, I don't know a lot about other practitioners and I don't, for the most part of what I understand, there's not a lot of options out there who specialize in this. And so what I've found to be really helpful with a lot of my clients and students who are on this course is that they take the content and then they work with a therapist who's in their network and they bring the information of the content and the exercises mm. that I provide in it. They bring that to their therapist and they talk about like as an advocate for themselves and their pain. Yeah. And they say like, oh, I learned this about how this might be related to my pain. Can we talk about this? Or mm -hmm. this struck a, a, an idea or a memory in my mind. I think I need to explore this more. And then of course there's like, I, al I also have like an online community when they, when people are involved in the course, they have the online community to be able to like get feedback and support and like accountability and, and help and, and connect with the community of, of women vulva owners who are trying to work through this process as well. So wow. that's the best, that's the yeah, best thing I'm, that I can offer personally so right grateful. now. Yeah, no, I'm so grateful for the work you do and the way that you communicate it. I think this is like a really common problem, as you said, and a lot of people don't see a way out. So I think you coming in and talking to us has been really, really helpful. Um, and I hope will help some of our listeners who I'm sure are interested in finding this 12 week course and are interested in like finding you on social media. So how can they do that? So intuitivesensuality.com is my website and that is linked um, on there is linked to my course as well. I have been so focused on creating content and this course that my social media is like terrible, but they can try and find me on there. <laughs> um, intuitive. It sounds like you don't need it though. The content speaks for itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then kanakassard.com is my general website as well. And so people can email me through that kanakassard at gmail.com. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful to be on this. I love what you guys do. And you just, you both just rock. Aww, you rock. <laughs> yeah. And remember that we are part of this amazing podcast collective called pleasure podcasts, which includes some other amazing folks to listen to. So check out pleasurepodcast.com for more. Um, as always, if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, you can find us on Instagram at sluts and scholars on Twitter at sluts scholars, and you can email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. <laughs>